0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, reading from verse 1 through to verse 27. Christ, the King, the Messiah, has come to Jerusalem, the city of God, and he has come in judgment. He has come declaring the judgments of God against the wicked rulers who will not listen, will not follow the king of kings, the one over them, even God himself. So Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 27. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard. From the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him. But feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken (coughs) this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person and man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, or not? Shall we pay, or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and he and leaves his wife behind, and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and died; he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus asked and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven but concerning the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this morning is found in the chapter that we read. Mark chapter 12 and verse 17. And Jesus asked and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The king has come to his capital. And the king has come to a capital that is in a rebellion against him. Capital, where the leaders who are supposed to be stewards really looking after the realm for him are in fact so taken up with their own power, their own importance that they do not want him to come. And he knows everything. And they hate him. And he knows that as well. And so we see here in the section that we read his words, speaking of his being rejected and also of their being rejected. Those who rejected him are themselves rejected because they have not lived up to their responsibility. And they have rejected God's teaching. They do not know the laws of the very high king they are supposed to be serving. And so we see here, first of all, rejection. We see, secondly, a responsibility. And thirdly, a resurrection. Rejection, responsibility, and resurrection. And first we have rejection, the parable of the vineyard. The picture of the vineyard illustrating God's kingdom... God planting his people in the land was one that appears one that appears in the Psalms Psalm 80 in particular and it appears in the prophets both Isaiah and Jeremiah use this illustration Israel as the vineyard but Christ's use of the picture is slightly different because he's using the picture Not to criticise the nation as a whole, but to criticise the leadership. Of course, the leadership of the nation were under Roman rule, they were under Roman occupation. The leaders consisted first of all in the formal leaders, that's particularly the priests associated with the temple in Jerusalem, but also the more informal leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who were... The popular teachers of the day. Who were respected. Because unlike the priests. They were not shut up there in Jerusalem. An aristocracy. But they were there among the people now. They were treated as a sort of aristocracy of teachers themselves. But to some extent it was rather like the situation that existed before the Islamic revolution in Iran. Where you have the Shah and his Associates as the political leaders they were an aristocracy and then you had the imams the ayatollahs etc who were the popular teachers and yet all of them were corrupt from the top to the bottom God had indeed planted a vineyard he had as it says in Psalm 80 he brought a vine out of Egypt and planted them there in the land of Canaan, there in the land of promise. He ploughed a vineyard and set a hedge around it. And then the, the picture there is of the, the various things that every vineyard had. It had a place with a wine vat, a tower, watchtower, and so on. In other words, he had done everything for the vineyard. The vine dressers had, had no part at all in building it. They were simply the tenants, the tenant farmers who were in charge of running it, and then at harvest time, it's quite a common arrangement in the ancient world, at harvest time, the landlord would send a servant to collect the rent. And as long as the servant wasn't sent to collect the rent, everything looked to be all right. But then in the parable at harvest time, along comes the servant to collect the rent, and instead of being given the rent, he is beaten up and sent away empty handed. The vine dressers, the tenant farmers, have shown themselves to be a bunch of thugs. And he sends another servant, and this one they throw stones at him and injure him and beat him up again. And the third one is then murdered. And it goes on. Now, of course, in real life, he would have sent in the bailiffs in force to evict them long before that. But in parables, people often do strange things. Because the picture here is God and the people, particularly God and the leadership. God sent the prophets, prophet after prophet was sent, to the leaders of Israel and Judah, calling them to... Render unto God the things that are God's. That's why our text this morning is verse 17. Render to God the things that are God's. God had put them in their position. It was God's nation and they owed God their obedience. And yet, time after time, instead, they said, We were a nation. We must behave. We must be like the other nations. Whether it was in setting up altars to other gods. Or whether it was in raising armies and entering into alliances with other nations for defence or offence. But they would not render to God that which was God's. When the prophets spoke out, the prophets were abused. Some were imprisoned. Some were even murdered. And the last of the prophets was John the Baptist. And he came preaching and he came to the king, King Herod, king over, not over Jerusalem, Herod, but over Galilee. And he said to Herod, among other things, he said, You should not have stolen your brother's wife. Herod had taken Herodias, who, of course, as the name suggests, was also his first cousin, away from his brother, Philip. And he had married her while Philip was still alive and while his own wife was still alive. Herod's family life was a mess. And John the Baptist said you, sh- you should not have your brother's wife. And so of course Herod had him thrown in jail. And eventually Herodias managed to bring about John the Baptist's murder. Beating some and killing others. But not listening to any of them. That is not really listening. Oh yes, Herod liked to hear John the Baptist preach. But he would never do what John the Baptist actually told him to do. Namely, to stop committing adultery. He liked to hear. But not to do. And then God sent his son. Then he sent his son. Saying, they will respect my son. Surely. If they don't respect servants. Who of course in that context they would be slaves. If they don't respect slaves. They will respect the son. Maybe their problem is that they don't like to. Obey words sent to them by mere slaves. I will send the son an heir. They will respect him. Surely they will respect him. Surely they have enough decency to do that. But instead the vine dressers, and at this point their behaviour is quite insane, and that's the point of the parable. If we kill him, if we kill the heir, we will have the vineyard forever. Because this was the problem, they were treating it as though it were theirs. Not somebody else's, as though they were the owners and not the tenants. And that's why they didn't like the messengers, because the messengers said, no, you are under authority. And that was the problem with the authorities. They do not like to think we are under authority. It's so often a problem with those in positions of authority that they think of themselves as being the ultimate, the final authority. It happens, sadly, in churches. It's one of the great issues at the moment in the Church of England, one of the causes behind all the utter confusion And not just the Church of England, of course, the Methodists, the URC, the Baptist Union. It's people, instead of saying, we are under God's authority. This is God's church. We are under God's authority. The leaders of the church are under God's authority. They're not under the authority of the church members even. But we are all under the authority of God. And God gets to say what his church should do and what his church should believe. I mean, we have the, the utter insanity at the moment with the Church of England. You've got this insistence that if a, a man exists, a man puts on a dress and no, bad makeup and says, You need to call me a woman, then they say, Oh, you've got to, to call him her. But when God says that he is the Father and when God's word uses male pronouns for him, oh well, we can have some liturgies that use female pronouns for God. You can't misgender, so they say, you can't misgender a so-called trans priest, but you You can use whatever pronouns you like of God. You've got to respect that priest in address. You've got to respect his alleged pronouns, but you don't respect God's pronouns. No, we respect God. What does God say? Render to God that which is God's. Render to God the obedience to his authority. Recognize God is the head of the church. When the question is asked, who is the head of your church, the answer is this, God is the head of the church. Not a pastor, not a bishop, not a prince, God is the head of the church. And God has set his son Jesus Christ, who himself is God in the mystery of the Trinity. He is the head of the church, the church is under him. He sends his son, they will respect him. We should respect him. But the vine dressers said, We this is this is what we'd be looking for. We can get out from that under that authority now if we kill him. When Christ came to Jerusalem, the leaders killed him and hung him on a cross. They crucified him, saying, We will not have him. Lifting him up in the air. A sign that earth would not have him and heaven would not either. And yet it was for us he hung and suffered there. He died. Mystery of mysteries for sinners. That even those very men who crucified him. If they would believe they would be saved. They would receive the forgiveness of even that sin they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard and what will God do and we are fools if we think that things would be different today no if he were to come today to General Synod of the Church of England and I would say indeed to Methodist Conference and to synods and conferences of so many denominations if he were to come, they would cast him out. They would at the very least bar the door and say we will not have this man to come and speak to us. We have our own ideas. We will let the spirit of the age dictate but not the Lord God Almighty, the head of the church. And what folly it is. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he say, oh well I'd better let them keep the vineyard to themselves. No. He will come and destroy the vine dresses and give the vineyard to others. That was what happened in 70 AD. Jerusalem, in revolt against the Romans, was surrounded and put to fire and the sword. The old leadership was broken forever. The priests ceased to be, really. And God's people, God's church, was left to others, to the apostles, and to those who follow in their succession. Not a succession of ordinations, but a succession of teaching and discipline. A succession of listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do believe in an apostolic succession, but not one of ordinations, no, not one of baptisms either. But of teaching, that those who teach what the apostles taught... Are in the succession of the apostles. And it matters not who ordained them. It matters not who baptised them. It is the teaching of the apostles. The gospel of Jesus Christ that matters. And it is to those who are called of God. Who teach the word of God in truth. Who are in that succession. It is to them that Christ has entrusted his people, his church. And if that old priesthood, established by God himself who called Aaron, if that was destroyed by God, so that there is no high priest, no temple, no priesthood now, if that was destroyed, the same, same will happen to all clergy disciplines, conferences, synods unions that come merely from man. They who reject him are rejected. But have you not even read this scripture? Christ says to those very rejection, those very rejectors of him, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Christ is exalted in his church, among his people, because it is God's doing. He has been raised from the dead. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The church is built on him. My faith, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And the church, the true church, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are being built together. A temple, a house for God, knit together in Christ the chief cornerstone. And those who heard the parable hated Christ because they would not render to God that which was God's. Repentance at that moment was that which they should have rendered And they did not repent. As long as life extends, there is, humanly speaking at least, that possibility of repentance. That call that goes out to repent now. And so it goes forth yet. They were angry with him and so, seeking to evade their responsibility, they came with a question. So we come to our second point, that of responsibility. They came with that question: Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now they begin the question with patriot, the most obsequious flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true, and care about no one, don't I mean, of course, caring about in terms of having compassion, but you don't care what anybody else thinks. You care about nobody, you don't care what anybody else thinks. For you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Never were truer words spoken by men who did not really want to believe them. Because, yes, Christ does not listen to what other people have to say. Never mind what the world's philosophers think. Never mind what the talking heads on the television think never mind the columnists in the papers never mind Sandy Totvig or anybody else he doesn't care what they think because he does not regard the person of man he doesn't regard whether it's the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Prime Minister or the President of the Methodist Conference or the moderator of the United Reformed Church or the president of the Baptist Union, or the president of the FIEC conference. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks, but he teaches the way of God in truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus says. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he teaches the way of God in truth because he is both the way and the truth. Follow me, he says. I am the way. They were right in what they said. But they were hoping by saying that to lull him into a false sense of security. They imagined that he had the sort of ego that they had. An ego that likes to be stroked. They imagine, in other words, that in some sense he did care what people thought. He did care that people thought highly of him. Now people should think very highly of Christ. For whom he is. For what he is. God with us. God incarnate. But he does not care so much what people think of him. Whether people say, oh I think that Christ is a good teacher... He is more than a good teacher. But they come with the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Paying taxes is something that those who pay taxes would generally rather not do. We look at our tax bill and we say, why is it so much? Filling out tax returns. If you have to do that... You look at it and you say, well, why do I have to pay so much tax on the money that I have earned? But, the situation there was even, even worse. Now one of the things that was raised in the Brexit campaign, whatever your opinion on Brexit, one of the things that Boris Johnson and others raised was, look how much money we could send to the EU. And... Look how much money we paid to the Romans. The Romans who nobody voted for the Romans to be in charge of Israel. Nobody voted for the Romans to be in Judea. The Romans had just imposed themselves the way they did on just about anyone they could. And so people resented paying taxes to this foreign pagan occupying regime you see the Roman soldier marching down the street looking down his nose at all the the Jewish people looking down that Roman nose of his he is a symbol of a hated oppression it's somewhat like situation would have been in occupied France in the Second World War the German soldier marching down the street making demands of the French people. And we'd rather he wasn't there, we can do nothing about him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the corrupt pagan occupying power? Well they thought we've got a we've got him on a the horns of dilemma here. Because if he says yes, then we go, look, he's a collaborator. And if he says no, then we go well, that's awful. We'll go and tell Pontius Pilate that he's telling people not to pay taxes, and then Pilate left him arrested, and we'll be rid of him. Either way, we'll be rid of him. We we'll either destroy his reputation among the people as a, by saying he's a collaborator, or we get him locked up by the Romans by him saying, Oh, don't pay taxes. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. A hypocrite, a one who's playing a part, that all their words were just a mask for their true feelings. Why do you test me? And the word could be translated tempt. Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, bring me a coin, the coin that you use to pay your taxes. Now we've just, last year we got a new king and they're now rolling out new currency With his face on it. And the Romans, it was the same that each successive emperor would have his coins. Even those people who said they were emperors, attempted military coups in far flung parts of the empire, they minted their own coins with their face on it. And so they brought the denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Whose coin are you using? Caesars, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to guard the things that are God's. And it's that second point, render to God the things that are God's, that is actually his point here. Oh, they're so taken up with this question of taxes, not because they're really overly exercised by it, but because they think that they can trap him in it. But there are people so obsessed with the question of what should I give the government? What should I pay the government? So obsessed with the question of taxation who have not given one moment's thought to the question what shall I render to God? What is God's? Well, first of all, Caesar is God's. The powers that be are of God. The powers that exist, exist because God is over all. Whoever is in government, ultimately, whether for blessing or for judgment, God has put them there. And they are responsible to him. They cannot behave. Even pagan governments have that responsibility to God that is mentioned in the parable. Render to God that which is God's. Indeed we render to the government. All lawful obedience. But we need to render to God. All obedience. The government is in God's hands. That's why when it comes to. Elections in this country. We pray. As well as vote. That's why whoever is. Whoever is returned to government, we pray for them. Now we pray the same things for them, that they would govern rightly, justly and impartially. That they would know what was right and they would do what was right. Why? Because Caesar belongs to God. And you and I, it is God who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, as the psalmist puts it. Render to God that which is God's. Whose image and inscription is written upon humanity. In the beginning, God made man in his own image. And indeed, when we look at humanity today, it's like looking at one of those old Roman coins that's been dug up by a metal detectorist somewhere. You go to the Potteries Museum, you can see some of them. And the image and inscription is worn and corroded and marred and yet it's still there. It's still there. It's amazing. Um, Last year I had uh, these new Time Team episodes on YouTube and it's amazing what they can do with coins these days. I remember the old time team that they get a, a coin, it would just be this disc, and you could see nothing on it, and they'd say, Well, it's too, too corroded. But now they can get us one of these scanners, and they can scan it carefully, they can bring out the image and say, Oh, yes, this is Emperor Severus or whatever. Mankind is like a corroded coin. Every human being bears something of the marred and effaced, defaced image of God. Whose image and subscription is upon the coin of humanity. God's render to God that which is God's, even all that you have and are for his service. And that was what they had forgotten. They had not rendered to God that which was God's. Even in their very religious services, they thought only of themselves, hypocrites, making a, a great display of their piety. But inwardly, inwardly, dead men's bones. They were like, to Jesus, those whitewashed tombs by the wayside. So lovely to look at. Maybe a, somebody even got in a, a good architect, and the tomb had a little neoclassical facade, and inside, dead men's bones. Looks good, but rendered to see to guard that which is God's, the great responsibility, all of life for God, Hear him. And thirdly, resurrection. The Pharisees had tried something and they had failed. And then along come the Sadducees, the priestly party. The Sadducees were not entirely clear exactly what they believed. One of the problems is that our main source outside the Bible for them is Josephus, who was a Pharisee. And Josephus seems to have been determined to represent the Sadducees, not just in as worse. A light as possible, but in a worse light than was possible. But what we have in Scripture, we know the, Thad- the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and it does seem that they saw the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, as being as having a higher authority than the other books. It's not that they rejected the other books. Josephus suggests they did, but again, this is probably Josephus just trying to say how horrible and corrupt and heretical the Sadducees were. But they certainly held the books of Moses to be a higher authority. And so they come to Jesus and they've got their own question. And it's undoubtedly it's a question, it's like when the Muslim in the street comes up to you and says, Well, when Jesus was dead, who was running the universe? And you know at that point, the Muslim, it's not his own question, it's a question that his Imam has taught him. Or again, you have remember once this preaching in the street, and this little girl came up with a question: um, "Who made God?" And of course, I knew immediately her dad put her up to that. But I said, "Of course, that's a, a very good question, young lady. Now, it's a mistaken question, and then, and exactly like you know, these stock questions that you get on the internet." they're you know, Muslims will bring. The stock question, their stock question was this. There's a, a law that says, the so-called Leveret law, it doesn't seem to have actually been observed by the time of Christ, but it was in the Bible that said that if a, a man died without issue, if he married, married, died without issue, then his brother's responsibility as the levy the brother-in-law is to marry a wife and to raise up seed for his brother and they came up with this ridiculous scenario one woman seven husbands and no children and then at the resurrection whose wife is she? because she was married to all of them and they thought again like the Muslim with his question who was running the universe when Jesus was dead or the atheist with well who made God? they think they're very clever and Jesus' response is basically no, you're not very clever. You are just wrong and you are ignorant because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know the Bible. The Sadducees are the priests. Of all people, they should have known the Bible. You don't know the Bible here is true but also put down. You don't know the Bible. And you don't know the power of God. The priest should have known both. You know, it's one thing... When a Muslim brings an objection, you have to say to him, no, you don't know the Bible. He's a Muslim, I don't expect him to know the Bible. But if it's a supposed Christian, even a supposed minister, I expect them to know the Bible. But they didn't know the Bible. And they didn't know the power of God. They'd thought, first of all, the resurrection simply means a life just like this one. No, the resurrection means raised to a, a higher life, a greater life, a wider life. A bodily life, indeed, that the body that lay in the grave shall be raised by the power of God. But it won't be a life like this one. Marriage, in an earthly sense, doesn't exist in the resurrection. Oh, we we shall know even as we are known. Now. When people come with the object with saying "shall we know one another in heaven," my tendency is to say, as Mr. Spurgeon said once, he said, "Well, I don't think I'll be a bigger idiot in heaven than I am on earth." Now we shall know, and when we see our loved ones, when we see spouses who have gone before, we shall know who they are. We shall we shall all have relations, relationships in heaven, but the angels are not. Do not marry or not give in marriage. Why? Because one of the fundamental reasons for marriage is having children. There's no reproduction in heaven. It's a different state. It's a, a different condition in the resurrection. Because there's no death in the resurrection. There's no need for people to take the place of those who have gone before because. All God's people are raised from the dead on the last day. But what evidence do you have, Jesus, that they rise? Well, he could point to the later scriptures and actually mention it. But he takes them back to the burning bush. Even, even your canon within the canon, he says to them. Your five books of Moses, even they contain proof of the resurrection. Because Jesus said to Moses because God said to Moses in the burning bush, "I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, I am the God of these who have died. And yet God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Therefore the death of these people has to be simply an interruption in their living. Now of course in the Bible, death is not a cessation of being. Death doesn't mean that you cease to be. I've had many conversations with Muslims on these, along these lines. You know, the Muslim, well, when Jesus was dead, he was running the universe. I said, well, what is death? What is death? You don't believe death is, means that someone just ceases to exist, do you? And the Muslim had to say, well, no, I don't. Well, there we go then. Jesus. Therefore, didn't cease to exist when he was dead. Death for him, as as for all God's people, is an interruption in life. The life is lived, death, new life. And indeed, we may say, the hymn writer paraphrased the words of Samuel Rutherford, Twixt me and resurrection, but paradise doth stand. Today, Jesus says, the dying thief will be with me in paradise. There is, the spirits of the departed are with God. To die, says Paul, is to be with Christ, which is much better. And then the resurrection, at the end of the age. Then the resurrection. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are with God awaiting resurrection. Death is not the last word for them. The last word for them is life eternal life. He is not the God of the dead, those who go down into the pit forever and forever. Those whose existence is rightly called by the Lord Jesus eternal death, ever dying, ever separated. But they are those the departed faithful Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are those whose future, whose end is life, eternal life. God is not the God of the dead, that is those who go down to the pit forever, but of the living, those who indeed live with him, their spirits are with him now, those whom Christ will raise from the dead on the last day, that day of resurrection. And those then who imagine there is no resurrection are greatly mistaken. They have rejected the word of God. They who deny the resurrection. Who think only, as some do in terms of going to heaven when you die. And nothing beyond. Are mistaken. They are wrong. Because Christ has said I will raise them up on the last day. And there is our hope. Our bodies shall not be laid forever in the dust, but shall be raised incorruptible, renewed like unto Christ's now risen glorious body. These bodies that have borne the image and inscription, if you will, of fallen Adam, shall bear the image and inscription of risen Christ. Render to guard the things that are God's. And if we are his. If we believe in him. If we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall forever be his. For God is not the God of the dead. But of the living. And he shall raise them up. On the last day. Therefore we hear. And we see what a wretched choice is that is made by those who reject. Who will not render to God that which is God's. And we ourselves. We come in our weakness. We come in our. Lack of strength. And we have before us here this morning a table. That is spread. With simple fare. Simple bread. The fruit of the vine. The juice of the grape. A declaration that God has given to us his son. Who died for us. And gives himself to us. And as we come to the table. We confess that Christ has given himself to us. And we give ourselves unto him. And we receive. And we are joined with him. And we confess again. That this is till he comes. Till he comes. Christ has come. Once. And ascended on high. And he is coming again. And we shall see him. And every eye shall see him. And we shall be with him. And we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. And so we render unto him the praise and the obedience due. And we render unto him ourselves. Bought by the precious blood of Christ. Amen.